You're listening to audio from Grace Church Miami. May you be challenged and encouraged by this message. Having the affections of your heart stirred towards greater love and understanding of the person and work of Jesus Christ. If you'd like to check out more resources or donate to this ministry, please visit gracechurch.miami. This morning, I got quite the surprise as I opened my eyes, lifting my head from our pre-service prayer meeting, of which you were all invited to at 10 a.m. I looked, and behold, coming around the corner of the front row was my sister. I did not expect to see her. She's already gone. She was on a work trip, rather is on a work trip. Uh, in the Keys, and uh, I did not expect to see her because the connection being so short with her team that she's traveling with, and yet there was a brief window this morning where she had an opportunity to come over and just see me, and we could just catch up for a few brief minutes together. I have to confess in that moment, while I normally like to go around and greet others of you, perhaps I know you by name, others of you, well, I'd meet you for the first time this morning, uh, in the room, you all disappeared. To me, as I just wanted to take those moments with my sister and enjoy God's unexpected blessing to bring her to me. I love my sister. I also think this morning about the fact that I woke up in my house alone. My family is gone. My wife is still with me, to be clear. (laughs) But she traveled this past week with our youngest son, road tripping back to Nashville as he returned to his junior year at college there. And my middle son turns 21 today, his first birthday without his dad around, which I don't know if he's okay with that. I'm not. My oldest son is newly married. Yesterday marked his three-week anniversary of marriage, living now in Colorado Springs. I couldn't help as the Lord brought each of them to mind, plus my wife to text each of them and just tell them the things I was praying for them for today, things I'm encouraged by, things I'm asking God to do in their life for today. I love my family. I wonder when I say the word family, what what comes to mind for you? Perhaps it's those seated to your left or to your right because they are your literal family, like it or not. Some of you, perhaps like DeAndre, have been dragged here this morning. Not DeAndre presently, to be clear, DeAndre historically. (laughs) Others of you, Perhaps you think of family, perhaps the term is complicated, at best, or painful at worst. The word family brings up thoughts of bitterness, not just disappointment and discouragement, but bitterness or anger. Perhaps due to just the tragedy and the reality of a fallen world, you spent your childhood going from foster home to foster home. And family is at best complicated, if not painful. But others of you, when you think of the word family, you don't think in the terms about which I describe today my own family, my sister, my wife, whom I love dearly, my sons, whom I also give thanks to God for. Perhaps you think in the way that the scripture describes family. Those seated around you, maybe even right next to you, 
That though you might not share the same last name, though you might have different skin color or pigmentation or ethnicity, though your first language might not be each other's first language, you are nevertheless, ironically, more family than those to whom you are related to, biologically or by adoption. This is the nature of the church of Jesus Christ. Christians who gather together in geographic proximity, known as local churches, and are visibly testifying of the invisible reality globally, which is to be in Christ, is to be with the family. Augustine, the church father, has said, said, he who has God as his father has the church as his mother. This terminology about family is riddled and laced throughout Scripture. Paul, for example, calls Titus, one of his younger disciples, my true child in a common faith. Not unique to Titus, also to Timothy, he says in 2 Timothy chapter 1, verse 2, my beloved child. Neither one of these men were related to Paul, and yet they ironically were children in the faith, if you will. He is a spiritual father to them. Not to be outdone or overshadowed by John, John says himself in 3 John, verses 3 and 4, I rejoice greatly when the brothers came and testified to your truth, as indeed you are walking in the truth. I have no greater joy than to hear that my children are walking in the truth. Like a spiritual parent caring for their children. So John speaks about other Christians in this regards. Well, this morning we come into a section of Scripture that gives us various points of instruction, but does so under the continuing instruction of community. And not just generic community as if it's an alternative amongst all the nonprofit volunteer organizations out there, but a very unique group of people that are described in the Bible as a household of faith. Turn your Bibles to Galatians chapter 6, verses 6 through 10. Paul is taking us back to the theme of community, specifically community responsibility of our Christianity. Now, as you're turning to Galatians chapter 6, some of you might be new to the Bible. Maybe you don't even have a copy of the Bible for yourself. Let me just say, I'm so glad for you to be here couple of things I want you to know. Number one, we do have free Bibles for you at the Welcome Center. Now, there might be some in the pew back in front of you. Grab that, use that, put that back when you're done for the people who might come behind you and want to use that. But if you want a Bible and you don't have a, maybe an accurate, readable translation for you, we have them for free at the Welcome Center. You can just go there and say, hey, I'm interested in that free Bible Eric talked about. Meanwhile, if you don't know where to go, you can just sort of tap someone's shoulder around you and say, Galatians, where is Galatians? That sounds unfamiliar to me. They'd be glad to help you. They know what it's like to themselves to not know where Galatians was at one time. Or you could just go to the very beginning of the book, like all books, with a table of contents and find the book of Galatians. Galatians is this letter that the Apostle Paul writes to a bunch of Christians in different small churches in the southern region, region of Galatia, kind of the, middle, uh, the, the Mediterranean area, if you will, 2,000 years ago. And as he writes to them, he continues in what we've been together in for these last couple of months. Describing what it means to think rightly 
and act rightly. How those go together. Truth in life, lived out in community. Here's sort of the main point for our text this morning. Christians are to do good to all people, especially to other Christians. Especially to other Christians. If I could say it differently, it's almost like you're declaring favorites. You love everyone, but you love others with a particular responsibility for them. Finding our bearings back in Galatians chapter 5, so we get a running start here. Go back with me, if you would, to verse 25. Paul, after talking about walking by the Spirit in verses 16 and following, says in verse 25, from what we looked at last week, if we live by the Spirit, let us keep in step with the Spirit. And remember, he was emphasizing this corporate accountability all the way back in verse 25 of chapter 5. He continues that into Galatians chapter 6, verse 1, this idea of anyone's caught in any transgression, you are spiritual, restoring them. There's this sort of individual responsibility and collective community responsibility. And then in verses 4 and 5, as we saw last week, he talks about this idea of personal accountability. Look at what it says there in verse 4. Let each one... Again, verse 4, be, boast will be in himself alone. Again, verse 5, for each will have to bear his own load. But now in verses 6 through 10, our text this morning, while keeping the personal accountability in mind, he does not lose sight of the corporate responsibility. What we can see here in the text now is that one of the prime indications of the life in the Spirit is a concern for one another. Let's look at the text. Galatians chapter 6, verses 6 through 10. Let the one who is taught the word share all good things with the one who teaches. Do not be deceived. God is not mocked for whatever one sows, that will he also reap. For the one who sows to his own flesh will from the flesh reap corruption. But the one who sows to the Spirit will from the Spirit reap eternal life. And let us not grow weary of doing good, for in due season we will reap if we do not give up. So then, as we have opportunity, let us do good to everyone, and especially to those who are of the household of faith. All right, now friends, let me just give you a sense of sort of bearings in the text, because this can be confusing to sort of jump right into, especially for like, what's Paul doing here? Some have recommended that Paul is like, at the end of Galatians chapter 6, like, hey, before I finish this letter, let me kind of do a kitchen sink exhortation. I'm going to throw a bunch of things at you. I want you to, to hear these things, and then we'll get to my closure. But I want you to see, actually, there's some continuity. There's some consistency of what he's doing here. These things are actually are related. Verse 6 does not stand isolated. Verses 7 through 8 is not sort of like some general lesson. It actually all flows together as a part of this larger understanding of community responsibility and personal accountability. What he basically details here in verses 6 through 10 are these concerns, these concerns that we should have as a church. So let's first of all look at verses 6 through 8. Concern number one, we are concerned about our pastors. We are concerned about our 
pastors. Like, what? It doesn't say the word pastor. What's it talking about? Look at back to verse 6. He says, let the one who is taught the word share all good things with the one who teaches. Now, some have recommended that maybe verse 6 sort of connects to verses 4 and 5 and has no connection to verses 7 and 8. But I don't think it's actually true because verses 7 and 8 is like him sort of double-clicking on it to sort of explain this principle of connection here. But let's make sure that we're not losing anybody, leaving anybody behind. Go back to verse 6 again. The one who was taught the word. He's speaking about Christians who are being taught the Bible from their pastors. That's what it describes here. Share all good things with the one who teaches. Here Paul is focusing on the responsibility of those who receive instruction to support financially those who give such instruction. Uh, the teachers here are not identified by titles such as elder or pastor as they would in other contexts, even shepherd sometimes in the New Testament. Instead, Paul focuses here on the, the function of the leaders. What does that actually do? They teach. And it's a statement of value to prioritize that ministry by providing for them financially, really materially, so that their needs can be cared for. Paul is recognizing the significance of being taught is ultimately centered in the gospel. This isn't some like ethics class, some type of pastoral self-improvement offered by your local pastors. Friends, this is the reality of what is expected in communities of Christians. This is not unique to Christianity. It's certainly been true in Judaism before that with the synagogues and the rabbis to the reality to recognize that there is an expectation. In the same way we even recognize in the compensation of society with teachers educating our children and educating ourselves in the context of trade schools or colleges and other universities. So there is the reality here in the context of the church. But the significance here is to recognize what is being taught. Well, let's put this term, the one who teaches, in the context of the larger context of Galatians. Not simply Galatians 6, verse 6, but all of Galatians. The one who provides gospel clarity as to how one is saved versus the one who provides gospel distortion. I think sadly today it's true that for some pastors they are failing in their responsibility to actually teach the Word of God. How commonly is it today, tragically, for people to go into churches only to walk out of those churches an hour to an hour and a half later with, with no more clarity what actually the Bible actually says? They, they might have clarity what the pastor thinks about society, armchair sociologist that maybe he is, maybe a bit of therapeutic help to help you feel better, maybe a bit of life coach to give you some ideas and tips to how to have a better week ahead, maybe kind of a relational coach to help you identify some conflict resolution steps you can take, but you're still left yearning to learn God's Word. The prophets of old seem like they have been muted by so many pulpits today. And what Paul expects is that those who are faithfully teaching should be faithfully provided for. This is this idea that those who are being taught, ironically, who are being given through the teaching offered to them, 
are actually being included into the relationship to give back. And while they cannot give in their teaching, they can give in their providing for the continuation of their teaching, not only for themselves, but for the good of others, that others might have the opportunity to hear the gospel. Uh, Too often today, we have seen distortions and abuses of this, right? I'll be the first to say it, ironically, as a pastor myself, just to kind of go public with the distortion and sometimes the reality of how people can use such distortions as justification for their disobedience. Distortion number one are what we refer to as prosperity preachers. They take the word of God and they twist it. They distort it. They talk about sowing seeds of faith. Translation always somehow means more money from you, which means more money for them. They live well beyond their means. They live as some type, of, some type of visual promise of what God can one day give you that he seemed like he's giving them, ironically, through you. That's grotesque, greedy, and materialistic, perverting God's word. Then there's another distortion, which are those who perhaps are in ministry because, honestly, they're just simply hiding from responsibility. They somehow, under the virtue of the word, have similarly hid from it. And so week after week goes by and people are wondering, well, what do our pastors actually do around here? I mean, they give a little bit of a monologue talk every Sunday. You might like it, you might not. But beyond all the other days, what's really happening? We don't know them as shepherds. They don't smell like sheep. We don't think of them as disciples. Disciples, rather. Instead, we just think of them as maybe organizational nonprofit leaders who seemingly give the appearance of busyness, but yet seemingly are, more, are better at golf than they are the Bible. That's concerning. It's not the vision by which Paul has for the teachers or for the people. He intends them to labor, labor in their work, and for the people to respond to that labor by providing for more of that. Paul taught the Corinthian church the same thing. 1 Corinthians chapter 9, verses 13 and 14 says, Do you not know that those who are employed in the temple service get their food from the temple? And those who serve at the altar share in the sacrificial offerings? In the same way, the Lord commanded that those who proclaim the gospel should get their living by the gospel. Not to be outdone by the Corinthians in that conversation, Paul later taught Timothy as Timothy was sent by Paul to the church at Ephesus, a a church that Paul planted. That has to be reset, revitalized, if you will. He says to Timothy in 1 Timothy chapter 5, verses 17 and 18, let the elders elders who rule well be considered worthy of double honor, especially those who labor in preaching and teaching. The scripture says you shall not muzzle an ox when it treads out the grain, and the laborer deserves his wages. What's really interesting is what then comes next. What looks to be unrelated is actually related. Go back to verse 7. Do not be deceived. God is not mocked. For whatever one sows, that will he also reap. For the one who sows to his own flesh will from the flesh reap corruption. But the one who sows to the Spirit will from the Spirit reap eternal life. Now, it might be tempting to think Paul simply takes a hard left turn and changes the topic. As if he's giving kind of a proverbial lesson for just all of life, kind of a reap and sow, cause and effect, be careful what you do. 
That's certainly true in Scripture, and I would be remiss not to mention that. In fact, just for fun, do me a favor, turn to the middle of your Bibles to the book of Proverbs. We'll see an example of this in Proverbs through the voice of wisdom. Go to Proverbs chapter 1. You're like, I don't know where Proverbs is, Pastor. Well, go to the middle of your Bible. You typically find the book of Psalms. Go one book to the right. That's a book of Proverbs. Proverbs chapter 1. The sort of provincial, uh, provincial reality of what's actually being taught here, but it gets applied differently in Galatians. Look with me, if you would, at verse 26. The Proverbs of Solomon, song of David, king of Israel, from verse 1, now verse, uh, excuse me, verse 20, rather. Proverbs chapter 1, verse 20. Wisdom cries aloud in the street. In the market, she raises her voice. At the head of the noisy street, she cries out. At the entrance of the city gate, she speaks. How long, O simple ones, will you love being simple? How long will scoffers delight in their scoffing and fools hate knowledge? If you turn at my reproof, behold, I will pour out my spirit to you. I will make my words known to you. So there's sort of the the good side of listening to wisdom. Kind of you get out what you put in, if you will. Listen to wisdom, it'll be good for you. But now look at the turn of the tone in verse 24. Because I have called and you refuse to listen. Have stretched out my hand and no one has heeded. Because you have ignored all my counsel and would have none of my reproof, I also will laugh at your calamity. I will mock when terror strikes you. When terror strikes you like a storm and your calamity comes like a whirlwind, when distress and anguish come upon you, then they will call upon me, but I will not answer. They will seek me diligently, but will not find me because they hated knowledge and did not choose the fear of the Lord. Would have none of my counsel and despise all of my reproof. Therefore, they shall eat the fruit of their way and will have their fill of their own devices. So there's the negative side of not listening. Verse 32, for the simple are killed by their turning away, and the complacency of the fools destroys them. Verse 33, but whoever listens to me will dwell secure and will be at ease without dread of disaster. You're like, Eric, how does that relate to Galatians? I'm so confused right now. I heard that thought by like seven of you times a few more. I would be remiss as a pastor to not sort of speak to the larger principle in Galatians which is a sort of reaping and sowing. That's taught a number of ways, not just simply with wisdom, but Proverbs chapter 1 is just so good to not leave it on the, on the floor, if you will, but to pick it up and show it to you. Listen to wisdom, it'll go well with you. Do not listen to wisdom, it will not go well with you. There's sort of cause and effect. You reap what you sow. But in Galatians chapter 6, Paul takes this lesson that's taught repeatedly in a variety of ways throughout Scripture, but the context, remember, the text and its context, lest it become a proof text, the text and its context is what we care to see. And what is that context? We'll go back to Galatians chapter 6. After teaching what he said in verse 6 of Galatians 6, he then says in verse 7, do not be deceived. God is not mocked, for whatever one sows, that he will also reap. For the one who sows to his own flesh will from the flesh reap corruption. But the one who sows to the Spirit will from the Spirit reap eternal life. He's kind of arguing from the greater 
excuse me, from the smaller to the greater, from the lesser to the greater in this regards. He's talking about what is it that you value in this life? Do you value the flesh? Do you value what you desire? Do you want what you want and you're committed to funding that? Or do you see beyond what you can see because you believe what the word reveals? Namely, that the word of God bears fruit in your life and other people's lives. You prioritize that in your local churches. You see the significance of facilitating teachers to be able to have their needs cared for so that they too could be generous like you as you are to others, including them. He's saying if you don't think otherwise, then you're deceived. But he kind of takes this lesson and he goes from the temporal to the eternal. He's basically talking about here the realities of spiritual matters, this reaping corruption, as it says there in verse 8, versus reaping eternal life. This is sort of comparison of the reality of what ultimately your hope is in. This is another display of the good works that bear fruit in the life of the Christian that shows such evidence of one that's been transformed by God's grace. So he says, first of all, there's two concerns we should have as a church. First of all, we're concerned about our pastors. Second of all, he says in verses 9 and 10, we're concerned about each other. We're concerned about each other. Look back, if you would, now to verse 9. Let us not grow weary of doing good, for in due season we will reap if we do not give up. So then as we have opportunity, let us do good to everyone, especially to those of the household of faith. Now, if I can, draw your eyes back to, well, let's just get a running start. Look back to verse 4. I want you to see how he moves from the singular, the individual, to the plural. Verse 4, each one. Again, verse 4, in himself alone. Verse 5, for each will to bear his own. Again, verse 6, let the one who is taught share this with the one who teaches. Again, verse 8, for the one who sows to his own flesh, but to the one who sows to the Spirit. And then look at the transition now in verse 9. Let us. Let us not grow weary. Verse 9, for in due season, we will reap. If we do not give up, so then as we have opportunity, let us do good to everyone and especially to those of the household of faith. There's two parts of this I don't want you to miss. Number one is the humility of Paul. Uh, Paul includes himself in this plurality here. Let us is as much referring to himself as is referring to all of them collectively. Uh, This is encouraging to see, ironically, because let me ask you a question. Have you ever been kind to another? Have you ever been sacrificial and gentle with another? Have you ever been patient and maybe helped another? only to have them not respond in kind, let alone with just words of thankfulness. Maybe didn't even express it to you in any sense of the imagination. You're like, what's the point? 
I mean, I know that Jesus, when he's asked by the rabbis, rather by the, by the Pharisees, what, Jesus, Rabbi, what's the greatest commandment? And he says, the greatest commandment of all the commandments, 630 of them, is to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And then he adds this, and to love your neighbor as yourself. And that always sounds better than it actually is in action, because what if I've loved my neighbor, but my neighbor has not been loving back? Isn't it kind of an ethical obligation of if I love you, you're kind of in debt to me that you'll love me back? But what if you don't love me back? What if I'm obedient and you're disobedient? Paul says, well, welcome to the family. Yep. I just appreciate the acknowledgement here of what he's saying. Let us not grow weary of doing good. I don't think it's possible for you to have been a Christian for, I don't know, let's put a time frame on it, six months, 12 months, and not just get tired being Christian to your coworkers, to your family, to your siblings, to each other. All the romance of it wears off. The reality settles in. Man, this is a lot harder than I realized. Grace Church presents well on a Sunday. We sing, we clap, we hug, we kiss. Stick around long enough, we'll sin. In a variety of ways, some expected, some unexpected. And how long can you keep going before you're like, you know what? I think I'm out. This is why some people have claimed to disavow themselves of any commitment to the church. I tried, I served, I volunteered, and I didn't get thanks, nor did I get the like returned back to me, which could be a bit subjective in its evaluation, to be honest. But nevertheless, Paul would say, oh, welcome to the family. I know what it's like to have entire churches turn on you. And not just a friend that you lose. I'm talking an entire congregation to whom you literally have been physically stoned, literally beaten on your back with rods so that they might hear the gospel. God used that gospel so they come to faith in Christ. And coming to faith in Christ, they can be like children turn on you. Petty, divisive, turn on each other. And Paul says, let us not grow weary in doing good. And speaking of seasons, as he talks about in verses 7 and 8, he says, in season we will reap if we do not give up. Is it enough for the Lord to be pleased with you, to motivate you to keep doing the right thing? God has been kind enough in my life at times to pull the legs out from underneath me of every other false, bad motivation in doing the right thing and to be left with nothing else than this. It pleases the Lord. And I had to ask myself an honest question, is that enough for you, Eric? Is that enough for you? Because if it's not, it begs the question, then why are you ultimately doing what you're doing? 
Paul says here in the text, let's not grow weary. He recognizes the challenge. He sees the temptation. He identifies with it. There's a plurality to it. You can see it in verse 10. So then as we have opportunity, let us do good to everyone, especially to those who are of the household of faith. And notice how he qualifies it. He says, if we have, as we have opportunity. He's not expecting everyone to do everything all the time. He recognizes not everybody even has all the same resources, the same capacity by time or money or ability or intellect or relationships. But and so much as you have the opportunity, friends, how is God calling you to care for the needs of those around you? That's unique to you as you have the opportunity. Have you ever prayed when you go to work? God, give me the eyes to see the needs of those around me that I might be used by you to help meet those needs for your glory, not my own. Did you pray, any one of you, before you came into the assembly this morning, Lord, I pray you would give me eyes to see those around me. I pray that you would direct me, even for those brief moments of intermission when we could fellowship with one another, or even afterwards, that we might see each other and, and honestly listen and care and pursue and love and serve. And who are you perhaps even listening to that you might say, ah, there's something this week I can follow up with them and encourage them, pray for them. What? does it mean to be family? But to be brothers and sisters in Christ with God as our Father and Jesus as our Savior, the Spirit as our God, triune God had three in one to this reality. Notice how he directs us with some intentionality in verse 10. As we have opportunity, let us do good to everyone. That's sort of Great commandment, but then great clarification, especially to those of the household of faith. There is a reality here that needs to be recognized. The reality is, is that it would seem irresponsible, if not just simply maybe ignorant, to be so committed to all the needs out there that we neglect the needs here. I spoke to you earlier about my family. I speak about my family. It's a complicated conversation, right? I mean, we're talking about my wife. We talk about my wife and my children. We talk about my wife and my children and my sister and my brother-in-law and, 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 and my daughter-in-law, which I'm really happy about. Are we talking about my dad? Are we talking about his wife? Who are we talking about? Are we talking about my family? Are we talking about you? There is unique, distinct, directive relationship by which we have as a point of sensitivity. How irresponsible would a father be to be in society, caring for his work, being responsible, and yet neglecting his own household? This is exactly why, for example, Paul says to Timothy, Paul says to Titus in these new churches or this resetting of a church like 1 Timothy is to the church at Ephesus, why you should look for elders who particularly pay close attention first to their own household because he says if they don't give attention there, then we're not thinking they'll give well attention out there to the rest of the household of of faith. That the Lord would see that work first demonstrated there. The passage being spoken of here is about a Christian's responsibility, generally and particularly. 
Generally to society and those around them, their neighbors and doing good to them, but particularly to those that are brothers and sisters in Christ. This is why, for example, we do benevolence here at Grace Church. Do you know that when you give to Grace Church, you're not just going so that you can pay for the air conditioning as best as we can provide it? Or providing for pastors who have the ability to be available to you throughout the week and even to others around you? so that they might have a means to be able to provide for their own families, but also the ministry resources. And when we say free Bibles, who does that come from? I mean, I wish I could say I buy all those Bibles, but I do not. You do. And the ministry that we have in Sweden, where there's entire metropolitan cities with not a single evangelical church, how is the gospel advancing there? But through your giving. But what about when people hear through the awareness of the elders, are in a season of financial hardship, auto repairs that they cannot fix themselves, difficult home with single-income households caring for children, coming into the new academic school year and just having a hard time with school supplies. How do you even know of those, let alone give to those? You do that by giving to your church. That's how we prioritize these things. So here's a question for reflection. Whether it be for your own community of the household of faith or your own pastors, how are your financial decisions reflecting your desire to be positioned to care for and bless others versus to care for and bless yourself? What desire do you have and means to provide for that desire that you're denying so that you're able to care for others instead? You know, self-denial for the good of others and for the honor of Christ. Now, to be clear, this is not a call to asceticism. The belief of what Paul denies in Colossians chapter 2, which is some type of religious practice that somehow God is pleased by just your straight act of denial. Anything pleasurable is wrong. By no means eat and drink and be merry, for God has given these many good gifts. Drive and live and eat and enjoy your times together. But to do so to neglect of caring for others and providing for your pastors would be clearly not in keeping with Scripture. This isn't about duty, it's about delight. But maybe starting with duty as a principled commitment to get yourself to deny yourself to it eventually becoming a delight. Some of you know what this is like when you exercise. It's called a runner's high. Some of you are like, you have to be high to run. Why else would you? But there really is something physiologically that happens with some people when they run, and everybody's body chemistry is a little bit different. And sometimes for people, ironically, it's after they get past a few miles, and those of you are like, I'm surprised you made it that far to begin with. But after doing so for a while, what ends up happening is it's like your body starts getting triggered and it releases endorphins. And it actually for a time serves as a bit of a physically numbing effect where otherwise your knees or your arms or whatever might be hurting you earlier when you were sort of warming up. Now it seems like it goes away and you suddenly love it. It's amazing how God creates the body as you have this sense of dopamine and endorphins that you're like, man, I just, I kind of feel like I'm not in a good mood unless I get out and work out. You delight in that. You love that sense of commitment to fitness. You Enjoy that sort of gift, that common grace gift. It kind of gives you energy for your day. Friends, do you think about generosity like that? Do you love to receive so that you can give? Would you have a reputation, those who would know you as being a generous person? 
or perhaps just simply by selfishness. You think first and foremost and almost entirely about yourself. There's always another bag to buy, another trip to go on, another pair of shoes to have, another meal to eat. There's always more you can provide for yourself. After all, Miami's an expensive city, right? Just using our city as an excuse, we can always simply justify our means to keep ourselves insulated from the reality of what it looks like to be concerned for others, to deny ourselves to do that. Think about what it was like in Acts chapter 2, this Christian high, not runner's high. The spirit upon them, Acts chapter 2, verses 42 through 45, says the following. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and the prayers, and all came upon every soul. And many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. What were those wonders and signs look like? Well, look at what it says. And all who believed were together and had all things in common. And they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing their proceeds to all as any had need. I'm not asking about your need. I'm asking about others' need and your desire to help provide for that. As we close and think about praying for our own church, listen to the words of one Baptist church, not a few years ago, but a few hundred years ago in 1790 in Buckinghamshire, England, as the church signed this covenant together. And listen to how it just sort of summarizes Galatians 5 and 6. Listen to this with me here. They promise to walk in love toward those with whom we stand connected in the bonds of Christian fellowship. As the effect of this, we will pray much for one another. As we have opportunity, we will associate together for religious purposes. Those of us who are in more comfortable situations in life than some of our brethren, with regard to the good things of providence, will administer as we have ability and see occasion to their necessities. We will bear one another's burdens, sympathize with the afflicted in body and mind, so far as we know their case under their trials. And as we see occasion, advise, caution, and encourage one another. We will watch over one another for good. We will studiously avoid giving or taking offenses. Thus, we will make it our study to fulfill the law of Christ. Thank you for listening to audio from Grace Church Miami. May God draw you nearer to Him through His Word. If you'd like to check out more resources or donate to this ministry, please visit gracechurch.miami.